Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. So I was reading David Liebert's book, Rock and Roll Warrior, and it's going along, you know, pretty normally uh, until about two-thirds of the way through. It takes a turn that I really, really wasn't expecting. Super surprising. Uh, and uh, I'll leave that a surprise till you get to the uh, about two-thirds through the way of this interview with with him and me. Uh, it's it's a good book, really interesting. The guy lived a lot of lives in the music business, and if you're curious about, uh, you know, he had a he had top ten hits. He worked as a road manager for a giant touring band. He worked as a manager and booking agent, and, he, and we don't even talk about all of the folks that he um, that he worked with. So if you're more interested to get the deeper story, check out the book. And that's it. I hope. Uh, you're good. I will talk to you soon. Here it is, me and David Liebert. Hey, there are the happenings from the first LP, song called Same Old Story, and on the telephone is David Liebert, co-writer of that song. Uh, do you ever listen to the happenings? Does that song, when's the last time you heard that song? January 17th, 1971. <laughs> now, I have no idea. It's been a while. It's funny, when, when you mentioned Same Old Story, I had forgotten that we even recorded that one. But yeah, that's, uh, I'm going to have to listen to that. Do I listen to The Happenings? Once in a blue moon, I'll, I'll ask Siri or Alexa to throw something on there. Maybe just to, to see what the difference is. You know, what it sounds like to me today as opposed to what it sounded like when we recorded it. It's... Uh, uh, no, I don't listen to the happenings a lot, but every once in a while I may uh, listen to a song or throw something. I'll tell you, when we get done with this interview, I'm going to listen to the same old story. I <laughs> forgot that we even recorded that. The one uh, thing I hear all the time, not all the time, but frequently, is uh, see you in September, especially uh, the period of time that just passed. Every year it seems to, uh, every summer, it gets a lot of play. And uh, the summer before last, CBS even used it to promote their fall season and their NFL uh, CBS uh, schedule. So that was kind of cool. Same in September, the gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) A perennial. The book is called Rock and Roll Warrior, My Misadventures with Alice Cooper, Prince, George Clinton, Living Color, The Runaways, and more. And it really is a sex and drugs and rock and roll book. This book has it all. In fact, in some ways, this this could have been three books easily. There could have been just uh, a book about the happenings, I think, because that's super. But it gets ridiculously interesting and folks will hang on for some serious left and right turns here. So most of the action uh, happened a while ago, but you definitely name names in this book. Does anybody get bent out of shape when you publish a book like this? To tell you the truth, it could have been a lot more tell-all, salacious. Listen, you can't avoid it all because it's a book about rock and roll and there's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But I try to avoid some of that, especially the sex, although you couldn't avoid it completely. Because I didn't want it to be that kind of tell-all book, although, hey, folks, there's still plenty of it in there. Uh, I wanted it to be more of like being a fly on the wall, hanging out with these people, what it was like, what it felt like. And I tried to be a little more introspective than just saying, and then this happened, and then that happened. So I wanted the book to have a certain flow, and hopefully I accomplished that. Yeah, I I think you did, but I do applaud you for being honest, especially about 
like you say, about your own part in in all of this. So let's go back. You're born, raised in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, You're a natural on the piano. Your dad dies when you're 14. You've got this youth where you're stealing cars, having, up to this point, are you living what I'm assuming is the typical baby boomer lifestyle for a young man? I think so. I don't have much to compare it to, but everybody I was hanging out with was doing the same thing I was doing stealing cars and, uh, you know, playing cards. And, you know, is the driving age still 17 in New Jersey? If it is, that's the reason we were doing all these other things, because uh, until we got to be 17 years old, girls didn't want to go out with us because we didn't have any cars to, uh, you know, they wanted to go out with guys that, uh, you know, uh, had cars. Uh, The one thing we did do that I guess most others didn't, we used to like to hang out on the corner and chirp and harmonize. We used to call it chirping. And that was sort of the genesis of the happenings, I suppose. Am I right or wrong? Did you have a slightly more rebellious streak than some of the kids or no? I think I did. I, I, was, uh, I was a bit of a troublemaker, kind of undisciplined. I was unruly. That's the word my teachers used to use when they tried to explain my behavior to my parents. Do you think born that way, or did it come from circumstances? What happened? I don't know, but if you'd like to pay for the therapy, I, I'll <laughs> go, and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, what the, what the therapist said. I don't know. I just, I was a bit rebellious, and uh, and I think I hung out a little bit with rebellious kids. I mean, the first kid I brought home from kindergarten, my mother became hysterical because the kid was... Uh, you know, just a bad kid, even at five, six years old. I guess it was obvious. <laughs> you could pick her. Yeah, I thought he was cool. <laughs> so I guess I gravitated to bad boys. All right, let's move forward. You join a band called the Dynamic Del Airs, and you get a gig every Sunday at the Peppermint Lounge. That's kind of an amazing thing. I mean, in some ways, that was the center of the universe. People were coming from uptown to go to that place during that time. Maybe not always on Sunday afternoons, but tell us what that scene was like. I think it was a gangster type of place. What the gig was like. How long did you play? What kind of songs did you play? Who was in the audience? The uh, the Dynamic Del Airs was uh, managed by this guy. I can't remember his first name. His name was Block, and they had a song on Block Records, and he was able to uh, finagle a, a Sunday afternoon gig. You know, the Peppermint Lounge was like, it was the center of the universe, hottest club on earth, because Chubby Checker played there every night. And uh, I guess that's where the, uh, the, the twist was born. Of course, uh, we played here Sunday afternoon. For Chubby Checker, there were lines around the corners. For the dynamic Del Airs, if there were lines at all, they were very short. It was uh, kind of amazing because it exposed me to something I really didn't even know existed. I mean, I was only in my teens at this time. And, you know, the, the place was packed anyway. It gave me an idea that, gee, you know, this may be the life I want to live. Being a musician is kind of cool, you know, scantily clad waitresses and people so enthusiastic about the music. The kind of music we played, I guess, were just cover songs and one or two originals that uh, somebody in the band had written. We did that for a few months, so, uh, and I guess we played cover songs because that's what people wanted to hear at that time from the house band on a Sunday afternoon. Sounds great to me. I mean, it sounds like so much fun. 
Yeah, it was. It was really a lot of fun. I, I, I couldn't believe it was happening. And boom, all of a sudden, I'm doing this. After high school, it's, uh, this would be, I think, around 1961, if I've got the math right. You joined the Air Force, uh, and you're playing in bands and stuff. I assume this was a move to not get drafted and put somewhere really bad, so you kind of get ahead of the, the curve. Was that the theory behind that? It was, actually. I mean, the choices I had was get a job, go to college, or join the Air Force. And I had been thinking about going to college and uh, uh, some things in my life, I guess, led me astray to the point where I figured, you know what, I'm going to join the Air Force. Uh, That should shake up my life. I needed a change of direction, and I figured that was the best way to go if I wanted to shake my life up. And it was. (laughs) Got into the Air Force. I was ultimately stationed in Albany, Georgia, and I put together a band called the Dave Lee Quartet, easier to spell Lee than Liebert. And I did that every night, six nights a week, except Sunday night. So it started to interfere with my uh, job in the Air Force, which was uh, working on B-52 bombers. And I was coming to work uh, late all the time, which did not sit well with my superiors. I mean, after all, I had hydrogen bombs on these planes. I didn't want some kung over uh, airmen who had been up playing music all night uh, working on these planes it, uh, so they uh, they gave me an ultimatum and, you know you either stop coming in late next time you're late we're going to throw the book at you next day i came in late and they threw the book at me threw me in the brig for 30 days and kicked me out of the air force <laughs> amazing while you were there you were playing at this place called joe's cellar which sounds to me there's you know there's a little bit about it in the book let's call it a colorful place tell me about it <laughs> it was a colorful place of course it catered to uh military personnel but it also attracted a lot of uh shall we say uh, non-military people of questionable character I mean, Joe from Joe's Cellar, he excavated a uh, an area underground next to the club and turned it into an illegal gambling den, and it was quite a place. Just to get back to the book, which is called Rock and Roll Warrior, My Misadventures with Alice Cooper, Prince George Clinton, Living Color, The Runaways, and more. Chapter 3 is titled Marijuana. I have to admit, I liked it. So uh, after this Air Force thing, you bum around, you work a bunch of jobs, you discover Fire Island, you take acid out in Fire Island. So I've never taken acid. Tell me what it's like and tell me what Fire... Not everybody listening knows even what Fire Island is. Tell me just briefly where it is and what it was like back then. Fire Island is an island off the southern coast of Long Island. Um, it's sort of like a, a sandbar. It's very skinny and it's very long. It has an ocean side. It has a bay side that faces the Great South Bay. My impression, because I was a Jersey guy and used to frequent the Jersey Shore, going to places like Asbury Park, Wildwood, it was life-changing for me because I went out there with a friend of mine, let's let's check it out. And within five minutes of stepping off that boat, you have to take a, a, a boat to get out there. There's no cars or bridges, really. I made probably the most important moment of my life was that all these people out there, they were having such a good time. It was so disconnected to the rest of the world. And I came to realize that 
the most important thing in life is to be happy. I mean, what else is there? And what you really need to know is what is it that's going to make you happy in life? For me, it was a no-brainer. It was music, and it was at that moment I said, you know what, I'm going for it. I'm going to see if I can make this music thing happen for me. And it was Fire Island that really gave me that vision, that goal. This is what you need to do, David. And for that, I'm eternally grateful to Fire Island. Yeah, you paint a great picture. It makes me wish I could go take a time machine and, and go back there. Uh, tell me about LSD, because uh, how how was the uh, – was it still legal back then? What was the deal, and how was everybody taking it? It was a great place to take it because, uh, you know, you, there were no cars out there, so you couldn't get hit by a car. Just, the buildings are only one story high, so you can fall to your death from the roof of the building. I found it to be an amazing experience and also um, a very, um, uh, it was an experience. First of all, it changes reality. I think I mentioned that, uh, you know, I was w- walking towards the uh, the beach, walking down this pathway and it, the existence of time vanished. It simply didn't exist. So now I find myself walking towards the beach and with each small step, I don't, it doesn't appear that the the, the end of the walkway where the beach is, is getting any closer. You know, my perception, one little small step doesn't really make it look closer. So now with the, uh, without the existence of time, I'm like on a endless treadmill and I don't know how long I've been, walking towards the beach. It could be, you know, two minutes, uh, two days or two weeks. Uh, it was a very strange phenomenon. That's what I liked about acid. It, uh, it was fun. It was adventurous. It was all kinds of things like the absence of time. It was hard to distinguish at sometimes between a thought an emotion or an actual object like a table or chair. Try having a conversation with someone afflicted with that particular mental health condition. It was a great experience. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm not sure I recommend it, but uh, I'm glad that I did it. And uh, I experienced a lot of amazing things uh, uh, while on acid. And I didn't do it hundreds and hundreds of times. You know, maybe I did it 20 times in my life over a period of a dozen years or so. So you're back in the East Coast. The happenings are formed out of these guys that you knew. Some of them you played in marching band uh, in high school with. You're singing, you're arranging, you're playing keyboards, bass. Eventually, you get a deal with this company called Bright Tunes for $25 a week. You guys go in a room and write some songs. And this company was run by the Tokens. They get one of your songs cut by the Chiffons. It's very interesting. I think people don't realize that these guys in the Tokens, they had some hit records, but they really had their fingers in a lot of pies. They were very ambitious guys. They produced or bought publishing. I mean, they they were into a lot of different things. Tell me about their expectations for you guys. You're probably 22 years old or something. What were they thinking would happen to you in the beginning? I guess I saw something in us, especially Bobby Miranda, my writing partner, and myself. So they offered us a job writing songs for their publishing company. They gave us a little room with a piano in it in their office. And uh, we started churning out songs, and 
Uh, yeah, we were very fortunate that they liked us. Uh, they liked our little demo, which had interested them uh, enough to offer us that job. Yeah, they were very entrepreneurial. They they ran a publishing company. They produced uh, other people like the Chiffons. And, and part of the deal of uh, writing songs for them is the tokens they would produce the happenings. I know that Bob Prue was involved in the Bright Happenings uh, scene. You were singing background vocals for him. One, one, one of the times you're in the studio and uh, Frankie Valley drops by, what was his uh, words of wisdom, his message for the band? Frankie Valley stopped by while we were mixing, uh, uh, I guess, our second session, uh, recording session. He wanted to check out these young upstarts, also from New Jersey, like the Four Seasons were, but he kept saying... Don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. He was very supportive and very friendly and, you know, a really likable guy. But that was his message. Don't do drugs. Hmm. Well, sorry, Frankie. I guess we didn't get the message. (laughs) I would say that you guys definitely have a very... There's a there's a real commonality between you and the Four Seasons recordings if if you listen to them both and uh, fans you know folks yeah. aren't for, yeah so 1966 see in September it's number becomes number three it takes a while up and down what one of the amazing things about this record is it's released four weeks after you recorded it that is such a not the way the music business works nowadays just for a million different reasons so did you did you freak out did it blow your mind were you ready for that kind of success. I don't think anybody's ready for that kind of success. We didn't want to. Uh, we didn't want "Seeing with September" to be the uh, the, the uh, single. There was another song that Bobby and I had written that uh, seemed like the natural. But Mickey Eichner, the guy up at the uh, distributor and head of promotion, said, uh, "Listen, I'm telling you, let's put out "Seeing with September." If we don't put it out now, we won't be able to put it out at all. It's a seasonal song. This is sort of like." May. So it had to come out in June if it was going to be a summer hit. He simply was unrelenting. He simply beat us into submission. <laughs> they sent out 3,000 promotional copies to every station in the country that had a top 40 format. Not one single station decided to play See in September. So, oh, God, I guess the guy made a big mistake. But somehow or other, he just he believed in it, and he just banged away at it. He begged, groveled to get you know some playlist commitments from various stations, and it started to catch on. Uh, it's an amazing song. You guys were on the Tonight Show, the Mike Douglas Show. You did tours. You did Vegas. You did Dick Clark tours. Those things always fascinate me, where everybody just does a few songs and you play multiple shows a, a night. Sometimes was that fun or was that torture? What was that like? It was fun. It was a lot of fun. You were hanging out with guys, sort of the about the same amount of success. You were um, you were just hanging out. You were all kind of thrown together. You were playing in front of fifteen, twenty thousand people a night. It was one of the best times I ever had. We weren't getting paid much, but uh, we sure were having fun. With each show, we became better and better at w- what we were doing, honing our musical skills and our performance skills. So, yeah, I have fond memories of all of that and uh, the camaraderie and, uh, you know, just traveling around, uh, even though it was a dumpy old bus that we were traveling around in, 
just going from city to city, meeting people, doing shows in front of so many thousands of people. You know, we went from nothing to that within a very short period of time, months, three, four months. Amazing. The, the happenings end up having, I think, four top 40 songs, uh, and the band does slowly evolve. The, the third album has much more of a, more originals, it's almost all originals, and it has much more of like a self-contained band song, but I think yeah. you, you especially could sort of see the writing on the wall. It's a very interesting time to be in a band that kind of mid-60s, because culture is changing so quickly. Eventually, y- you leave the band. I think you could sort of see the writing on the wall before the other guys. Uh, yeah. You were, Long story short, you worked as a manager, a booking agent, and eventually Alice Cooper's tour manager. So was Alice Cooper on your radar before you went up to Connecticut to meet him and see if that chemistry would work? Not any more than the fact that my friend Johnny Podell was their agent, so I was aware of them and kind of knew a little bit about them, but didn't really know much about them, no. Uh, so what was your first impression when you saw the ensemble? Well, I think I went I went to a gig uh, before I ever went up to Greenwich, Connecticut, which is, uh, it's kind of a blur, but I think I went to Pittsburgh with Johnny to see the, the band uh, play one night, and it was pretty amazing. I had never seen anything like it. And then a few weeks later, uh, Johnny had suggested to Shep Gordon Alice Cooper's manager, who was looking for a new tour manager, wanted to check out uh, David Lieber. He's the road manager for Rare Earth right now, so he's got a little bit of experience. And so Shep took me up to uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, where the band lived with all their roadies and girlfriends and dogs and cats. And they were rehearsing. The, the, the mansion had a, where they lived had a huge ballroom. And that's where they had set up to uh, rehearse every day. And on that particular day that I went up with Shep, they were working with their new prop, the gallows. You know, over the course of time, uh, Alice was beheaded with a guillotine, electrocuted in an electric chair. This was the gallows. uh, And the crew was practicing hanging him to make sure that nothing went wrong when you know when they when they hung him i mean if uh, you know if they accidentally killed him we'd all be out of jobs so they were hanging him over and over again just to make sure they got it right you know that nothing would ever go wrong and there were some safety things on it but uh, i said to myself wow this is going to be a fun job <laughs> it just everybody was in you know such a carefree partying mood although i could see everybody worked very hard it was in that respect there was absolutely no nonsense it was business mm. but interesting another day at the office with the guillotine or whatever's going on uh so they had their own airplane there was it was a huge band it was a huge operation and huge level for you a lot of work a lot of problems to solve constantly tell us one story that sort of illustrates what the level of touring and work and and just the level of fame the band was at you almost needed your own plane to deal with everything that you had to deal with either logistically or in planning structure so i found myself having a job of trying to coordinate all of this and chef gordon gave me enough leadway to either uh, get it together 
or, or fail in the process, one or the other. But it turned out to be an environment in which I really, uh, I really thrived. Uh, he gave me a lot of responsibility. So it was my job to make sure that everything ran smoothly and uh, well coordinated. And I guess I had a talent for that. Uh, I'm sort of a nuts and bolts guy, you know, leave nothing up to chance. Don't assume anything and make sure, you know, if you follow those two rules, a lot less will go wrong. And, uh, but the other element of it all was with all the hard work, with all the planning and logistics and everything, you had to make it fun. In order for me to be accepted by all of these 40, 50 people on the road, I had to make it so that they were happy that I was there, that I was doing a good job, that uh, they could depend on me if they needed anything, and also made it fun. A lot of laughs, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of ball busting. I needed to create an environment where everybody was having a good time. And uh, I think I did that. I think that was uh, one of the things that I accomplished. That's interesting that that's, yeah, part of the job, I guess. In the book, there's a lot of photographs, including one of this person named Sweet Connie, who is you know, sort of the world's most famous groupie. She's mentioned in the song American Band. Uh, I will say that throughout the book, the way women are treated is very different from how I would want my daughter treated, for instance. Uh, When you sort of look back on all that stuff, how do you see that topic? You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, some of the people that were, uh, are involved, for instance, uh, some of my PR people, uh, you know, the publisher, uh, even the, the girl that, uh, that edited the book. I mean, I did all the writing. I didn't have a ghost writer, but, uh, I had, uh, I had a really great editor, a good friend of mine. And that subject came up a lot. Look, uh, that sort of behavior, that kind of womanizing, uh, is simply not acceptable today. Back then, it wasn't an issue for some reason or other, or if it was an issue, either nobody really cared or, or people that uh, uh, found that kind of behavior, uh, you know, repugnant, didn't have, really have a voice. I can see it now, but you know what? That's the way it was then. I make no excuses for it. I also make no apologies. That was the way it was. I certainly don't treat women that way today. I certainly understand, um, you know, how they could feel, you know, by that kind of behavior. But no one seemed to object at that time. Uh, There were women that were literally throwing themselves at this tour, were just happy to be inside the tour bubble for whatever reason it was. And, uh, yeah, we kind of... I wouldn't say we were on our best behavior when it came to women, but nobody really thought about it as bad behavior. Is that a bad thing? I don't know. It's a bad thing today. If it was a bad thing, then nobody seemed to object, including women. Hmm. Interesting. You're tour manager for him for four years. Then you moved to L.A. You work... 
Uh, again, in all sorts of management, booking agent, you work with the Runaways and Susie Quattro, a lot of colorful characters coming in and out of the book. Let's pause for a minute to talk about Kim Fowley, who comes in the book. He was a guest on the show years ago. He's passed away now. Uh, not everybody knows who he, who he was, but he had his fingers in a million pies, had a few yeah. successes over the years. Your dealings with him are crazy. What was he like? Well, talk about people that seem to have a low regard for women. He would probably be, have to be at the top of the list. His behavior, even in that era that we just discussed just before, um, was reprehensible. I mean, I liked him. I thought he was a really interesting character, but his uh, demeanor was very confrontational, especially towards women. And uh, he treated everybody pretty pretty rough. He was a pretty rough guy on on the people he he certainly uh, ruled over the runaway with an iron fist and uh, he was just a strange guy i was sort of fond of him because i found him extremely entertaining why he acted the way he acted i i'll never know but you know deep inside i think he was really just all all business he was did you ever meet anybody? They're simply unfiltered. They just say what's on their mind without any regard to what the consequences are of their words. He was that kind of guy, sort of unfiltered. It, that was him. Yeah. That was that was my impression of Kim Fowley. I'm curious, as the book moves on, you work with Sheila E., you cross paths with Prince, you uh, almost work with Guns N' Roses. During all of this time, was there anyone who was like, hey, you're that guy from The Happenings. You had, you know, top ten hits. Did that ever cross back into your life? Uh, Well, you know, after I left The Happenings, at that time, early 70s, late, uh, you know, every once in a while, and I say once in a while, Somebody say, hey, aren't you that guy from The Happenings, or aren't you Dave Lee? No, but then, no, it sort of faded away. I mean, the people I worked with realized it. Alice loved the fact that I was in The Happenings because uh, on tour, if we ended up in a club or there was a piano backstage or in the lobby of the hotel or a party we went to, he would love for me to sit at the piano while he leaned up against the piano uh, singing songs like uh, The Lady is a Tramp or I Left My Heart in San Francisco, which he pronounced Dan Frantito when he did his uh, Tony Bennett imitation. Can you imagine what his diehard fans would have thought of if they could picture him a la Dean Martin's uh, belting out these uh, these these kinds of songs of the Um, That sounds like fun. I wish I would have come upon that in a hotel lobby one day. So the next part of the book is the part of the book that I... It was one of the biggest surprises I'd ever come across in any book about the music business. I'm reading the book and I'm expecting... You know, time's moving forward. I'm expecting you to get involved in some other thing. Because so far you've just been involved in all these different businesses, all these different bands. You've kind of had a good, your nose was always, you know, sniffing around and you were great at meeting people who would help connect you to the next thing. But what happens in the next part of the book is basically you start selling cocaine to all these people, you know, you sort of use these same connections, but to sell drugs to to folks. How pervasive was drug consumption in the music business circle you were in at that time? At that time, 
I didn't know anybody that didn't do coke. A hundred percent. Well, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't, but it sure seemed that way. I didn't know anybody that didn't do it. It was, you know, it wasn't a sort of insane, rampant, uh, that kind. Of, it was very recreational, very, you know, uh, a sort of a social thing, and uh, it seemed like everybody did it. So, was there anybody who said, "Hey, David, this is not a good idea"? Anybody? No, not really. Should they have? Uh, I don't know. Listen, uh, I, I made a conscious decision. You know, there's an old saying in New Jersey, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. I knew that going in that something could happen, and uh, it happened to other people. Uh, I wasn't so naive that I didn't think it could happen to me, that I could get arrested. I didn't think I would. I thought I was being careful, but uh, you can't be too careful. I mean, one person can screw the whole thing up, and that's sort of what happened. Yeah, you you do get arrested, and then on probation you get arrested again, which means you just have to go to prison, no matter how good a lawyer you have. So how yep. long how long were you in prison? And it seems like I mean, from what I read in the book, that it wasn't that bad. You make of it as best you can. I mean, I spent six months in the county jail awaiting trial and sentencing, and when I finally got sentenced, I spent another eight months in state prison. State prison was like a country club compared to the county jail in Los Angeles, that's for sure. But I figured out a few angles. One thing was I wrangled a job in the food service department, so at least I could avoid, for the most part, the horrible slop that you had to eat as as an inmate. I, I worked in the food service department, so I was eating the exact same food that the cops were eating. So that was a good thing. So that certainly made it uh, uh, a lot less horrible being in the county jail. Uh, and in in uh, state prison, I just uh, hunkered down and, and uh, uh, you know did my did my little job there. And the I, I worked for the the cops' monthly uh, prison newsletter. So uh, I was working in an office. I read hundreds of books to pass the time. And also uh, the uh, newsletter office was adjacent to the, uh, the, the cops' uh, dining room. So I figured out how to eat well in state prison. You make the best of it. You know, you let people know you're not going to take any crap from anybody and uh, that saves you from, you know, being tortured by other prisoners. So I was able to accomplish that, and I was, I made the best of it. I'm not proud of it, but it's a chapter in my life. I, I couldn't not, you know, a chapter in my life. It had to be a chapter in my book. <laughs> oh, it, like I said, it just when I got to that part, it was so unexpected, and it was very unexpected how openly you dealt with the whole thing. I, I, you've hinted in some other interviews that there's a lot of stuff that's not in the book, things you just held back because you didn't want to, it just wasn't your story to tell, maybe, is the way to put it. Uh, what kind of stuff are we talking about? Well, if I told you, uh, then it, uh, it would no longer be a secret. It'd be in the... Uh, no, there were things that would happen 
And I learned early in this uh, book writing process that you have to make a conscious decision whether or not you want something in the book. And what you have to consider is, am I throwing this person under the bus if I, you know, throw in this story? How would they feel about it? To uh, is it is it more private than you know something being in the book? Am I throwing it in the book just to make the book more salacious? I really didn't want to write a salacious tell-all. I didn't want it to be that kind of book, although there's some of that in it. You have to make a conscious decision um, for a variety of different reasons, whether you really want to put something in the book, or if you do put something in the book, include those details that could have an effect on somebody's life. I never realized it, but when you write a book, you do have to consider those things. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, without getting too deep into your like personal bank account, when you're in a band that has a bunch of uh, top 40 hits, uh, and you've written some of them, or you've you know you've got tracks on their greatest hits that have been you know now for f- forty years or whatever. Been they've been pressing those records and CDs and putting them on oldies radio over and over and over again. Is there just you know throughout your whole life has there been some sort of happenings income stream, little or big? There's always been a happening income stream, and I'm happy to say that today it's probably bigger than ever. And the reason is, you know, first you get paid royalties on physical goods. Well, they don't exist anymore. And then in the beginning, streaming, still to an extent, doesn't really pay artists all that much. So, yes, my uh, my income from the happenings did take a drop around 2013-14 because companies like SiriusXM and Pandora... Stop paying artists royalties for recording uh, for uh, recordings that were were recorded prior to 1972, and uh, yeah, my income dropped quite a bit, and I didn't know what to do about it. But there were two guys that did know what to do about it: Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, the the two ex Turtles from the the band the Turtles filed a lawsuit against Sirius XM and Pandora. The major record companies saw the value of it, of the lawsuit. They jumped on board. And those companies had to settle with us for hundreds of millions of dollars. So we got a, a big payday out of that. It was so influential that Congress passed a law, the Music Modernization Act, and we get a much better fair share of royalties for pre-1972 recordings uh, and I'm probably making more money as an X happening today than ever before. So that's kind of nice. And not only that, some of these recordings, especially seen in September, gets, gets used um, for various promotions. For instance, CBS uh, used seen in September for last year for their upcoming NFL CBS season. You heard it all during uh, August, and then it was so successful that they also added their fall lineup, the CBS fall lineup, using the song See You in September. So there's always something coming in, 
one way or another from our past uh, successes uh, with uh, with the happenings. I'm happy to say. Yeah. Uh, so let's play See You in September. Do you remember recording this track? Uh, are you guys playing with a live band in the studio? Was the band recorded first? Were you guys there when the band was recorded? Also, the label, I think, says produced by Bright Tunes, the label of the 45. Who produced it? Bright Tunes is the tokens. They were our producers. That was the deal when uh, they offered uh, me and Bobby Miranda a job writing songs in their office. And they hired Herb Bernstein to uh, write the orchestration for the song. And there were about 15 or 18 of the very best studio musicians uh, that were on that session. There there was a horn section. There was, uh, and in those days, there was no Pro Tools or then unlimited tracks. Or even uh, later on uh, in the early 70s, there were 24 track machines for a multi-track recording. See You in September was recorded on a four-track machine, which means that the orchestra recorded on three of the tracks before we even got to sing. This was the process then. And then those three tracks of orchestra were mixed down to one track. They would mix the orchestra the way they wanted it. Of course, you were stuck with it then. And that opened up three empty tracks for us to do the singing. And we would do uh, the background on one track, the same background on another track. That would be mixed down on another track. That freed up two more uh, tracks. And Bobby Miranda, our lead singer, would sing his vocals on either one uh, track. and that would... So it was, a, it was a recording process. And we paid very close attention to how it all worked because... Uh, Eventually, we started to produce our own records. So it was a very good learning process. It's an amazing-sounding record. Do you agree? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't really know what to make of it. Uh, you know, uh, it's um, it's like looking at your face in the mirror, and you're not quite sure. You can't see yourself as clearly as, as anyone else could because it's you. It's hard to be objective about your own face as you look at it in the mirror. You can see little pieces of it but you can't really see the whole thing from the same perspective that anybody else who looks at you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Of course I can. It's a little mind blowing. I'm sure. Uh, well, we're going to hear it now. Once again, the book is called rock and roll warrior. My misadventures with Alice Cooper, Prince George Clinton, living color, the runaways and more David Liebert, uh, former New Jersey resident. Uh, um, thanks. And I'm glad the story has sort of a happy ending. And I appreciate you spending some time with us uh, this morning. It was my pleasure Thank you so much uh, for having me, Mike. And uh, yeah, it's a Jersey guy, and it it uh, brought back a lot of a lot of old and a lot of good memories. And I appreciate that. Thank you. I'll be alone each and every night while you're away. Don't forget to write. Bye bye, solo. 